What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I think a lot of our listeners know that I also work with the Anti-Police Terror Project, and a big part of our work is working in partnership with communities to develop and implement alternative models to community crisis that do not rely on the violence of the carceral state or law enforcement. Data show that the only way to reduce violent interactions between the people and the police is to reduce the interactions between people and police. Uh, But they are so enmeshed in our communities and in so many ways that are completely unnecessary. Developing these models is literally about saving lives. It's also how we practice abolition right now. Today's guest is one of the primary folks, as far as I'm concerned, for this work, making it to the forefront of movement work and uh, I guess the so-called mainstream even. Uh, We're joined today by Dr. Mimi Kim. Dr. Kim is a longtime anti-domestic violence advocate in Asian immigrant and refugee communities. She is active in the promotion of community organizing, community accountability, and transformative justice approaches to violence intervention and prevention. She's also the co-founder of Creative Interventions, a national resource center to create and promote community-based interventions to interpersonal violence. They have released a toolkit and a workbook called Creative Interventions, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence. Dr. Mimi Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kat. Yes. (laughs) Um, I want to start a little bit about you. Uh, How did you come into this work? What was the life experience that you had uh, that led you here? Oh, there's so many different ways to answer that, Kat, because I've been doing this for a while. Um, You know, in some ways, uh, I had to really step back and think about my own background and my own family's background in getting here to the United States, which is through the door of North Korea, where where, uh, my father is from, and South Korea, where my mother's from. So we have a long, long history of being the victims of war and occupation and the military presence of Western imperialism. And I think that that really drives a lot of who I am, my identity, and how I look at uh, both oppression, but also justice in this world. I didn't really make those connections until maybe not so long ago as I was thinking about my work in the anti-violence field, which I had been in for a very, very long time, um, really since the late 1980s, and um, uh, and thought more about why I was so driven towards um, a critique of the carceral response, you know, what I think we now know is carceral feminism, but for so many years, I think it just was the way we did anti-violence work, which was calling the cops, um, doing things like passing the Violence Against Women Act in 1994 as part of the crime bill. I mean, that was one of those moments, which I really, uh, it was kind of a wake up call for me uh, that we to see the movement that I really consider myself part of going so far as to attach this bill to a crime bill, which I was bitterly opposed to, and then asked to applaud that this, that VAWA had passed without even mentioning the connection to the crime bill. And really, um, I think. That was one of those moments where this, I can't do this in this way. We have to do something different. And really um, found my allies, but also found that so many people were unwilling to look at the ways in which we had really uh, become 
the intimate partners, if you want to call it that, with law enforcement. And I realized that I had spent a lot of my time in the anti-violence movement really separated from the kinds of other social justice work, anti-imperialist, anti-military work that I was also involved in, um, you know, in a, in a very strong way and uh, realized how much there was a kind of a distance and a break between this work that I did very passionately, which is um, around domestic and sexual violence, but also this work I was doing around anti-imperialism and anti-military work. Um, and what I think what came out of that was a real seeking, a real search for those things to come together. And that's how I think that really led me, and not only me, but many, many others, I think, were having very, very similar questions. And while we didn't necessarily find uh, as many like-minded people as we should have um, within the anti-violence movement itself, we sort of found each other and started organizing and creating our own center, our own um, social movement, if you want to call it that, our own space. And that was the kind of the coming together of critical resistance in uh, 1998 and insight um, uh, women of color against violence now um, women transgender and gender nonconforming people against violence that uh, started around 2000 but um, you know that's a little bit that's one of the the stories I can tell in coming towards this work that I think it goes back generations if I look at the impact of um, you know these same forms of violence um, that have been taking place in, you know, in my home country, in Korea, and so much of the world. Yeah, I want to stay with this theme around carceral feminism for a minute. You know, I, I think you've heard mm -hmm. me tell this story. Um, my mom was on the front lines of the DB, DV movement in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, right? Mm -hmm. The town founded by cowboys, mm -hmm. Mormons, and the mob. Um, mm -hmm. And also a very segregated town. Yeah. And, and she would have considered, my mom passed in 2018. Uh, she would have considered herself an anti-racist, right? Um, mm -hmm. Ferociously so. She's a white woman. Um, and... I grew up in a home watching her and, and, you know, the small circle of women that were fighting to establish the first shelter there, right? Really fighting mm -hmm. to engage police, right? Fighting yes. for, for causes of harm to be held accountable and, and for them feeling at that time, right? That was their only resource. And um, I tell that story and I tell that story as a survivor of not just, not only domestic violence, but also a survivor of state intervention in that, right? right where I was the one who landed in jail. Right, right. It's one of the conversations I wish I could have with my mom the most. Uh, mm. uh, uh, and I wonder, because some of those foremothers are very much still alive, right? They're still engaged. What are the conversations with them like? Like, okay, we get that, that at that moment, right? This seemed like we had to do. Y'all, most of you white women did not catch the intersection of race uh, and, and, and class here, right? What this would mean for black women, uh, in particular, I'll say. Uh, and, and when we look at who's languishing in jails and prisons, right, uh, for defending themselves against uh, a, a cause of harm or, you know, getting wrapped up in the system because it responded, the state responded uh, to, to this incident, right? Like these are the conversations we have to have now. H how do you find that coming <laughs> when talking to our foremothers? Well, 
Interesting you should ask that because I actually did end up having those conversations. I went back to grad school. I, when I went back, uh, I had already been part of Insight and really part of this um, really strengthening critique of carceral feminism. But I really had some of those questions that, uh, that you're really talking about right now when you think about your mother, is knowing that a lot of women, and I'm, I'm going to say this, you know, it was primarily women, femme-identified people that I knew that had been strong leaders in the movement um, that went way back, and that many of them were actually came out of radical movements consider themselves anti-racist, consider themselves anti-military, may have considered themselves even anti-police. And I asked those questions of a lot of people that had been some of the, you know, forerunners of the movement, people that I knew, and then some people that they pointed to and people I started reading about. And um, it was really, really interesting to start asking them the question about why. You know, if you... it. And what I found, one, was, well, that a lot of people were wondering themselves, like, how did this happen? You know, how do we get here? And, um, and we're, at the time when I was asking those questions, we're responding to the, to the critique that was coming up from Insight and so many other um, people that had, you know, just kind of strengthened over time. Uh, I don't even think we necessarily consider called ourselves abolitionists even then when I was doing some of these interviews, but what was uh, becoming um, what we now know as the abolitionist movement was, you know, pretty much in full gear. So they were uh, cognizant at that point of not being able to run away from their critique, but, you know, at least understanding that that critique was making, being made full on and by some of the people that they were close to. And so they really had to answer that in a way that, reveal certain things to me about how and why this happened. One is I came to understand that for some of them, the very uh, politic that they had around anti-racism, and this is primarily talking to white people and their interpretation of what it meant to be anti-racist, is they actually saw engagement with the police as, as, uh, as fitting in to an anti-racist kind of framework. Now it seems shocking now, but in understanding it, I, I thought it was it was interesting because I think those same things could happen today. That people could say I'm anti-racist, but that's why I believe in police reform. For example, I'm anti-racist. Uh -huh. Therefore, there was one group that really started championing what we now know as mandatory arrest laws, which have been so you know put so many so that's many. That's how I went to jail. Color. Exactly. Including primary aggressor law. Yep. Primary aggressors. So not only them, but you, that more and more that you saw women of color being arrested because somebody had to be arrested, right? Yep. So we know and you know have known for a long time the racist implications of mandatory arrest. But the story I heard that was really interesting was that one of the major proponents of mandatory arrest was in Duluth, Minnesota. Why? Because uh, even though Duluth is 95% or something um, white, the uh, primary uh, community of color is Native American or indigenous First Nations. And they were among the, the majority of 
men who were arrested for domestic violence. And so actually they saw mandatory arrest as a way of countering racist carceral practices and were very proud of themselves in that the uh, ratio of white men arrested for domestic violence really shot up after the implementation of this law. And this is around maybe 1981, 1982. Mm. And I found this really... really, really fascinating in hearing that specific way in which they actually saw mandatory arrest as being anti-racist, as fighting against the kind of practice of only targeting um, Native American men for arrest. And, you know, we're very proud of the fact that this resulted in more white men getting arrested. And this policy that they promoted and was then later on was really championed in the state of Minnesota and became part of this study. And there's a lot of controversy around that study because so many studies afterwards showed that this was not a good practice, but nobody paid attention to it because, you know, the train had already left the station. Basically, mandatory arrest became this kind of buzzword, this policy um, that was then implemented across the country. Um, uh, you know, based upon many, many different factors, but one of the the, the important um, antecedents for this was this program, this domestic violence program that was in Minnesota, in Duluth, Minnesota. So that was one thing I saw as like, to me, that was surprising. I think that's the story behind a um, certain number of other types of mandatory arrest or mandatory minimum types of laws, that some of them were promoted in the name of being anti-racist. Now that is the, the other thing I, um, I, I heard a couple other stories like that. One was, listen, we, we need to have uh, police reform types of programs like witness, victim witness programs that are in law enforcement because that's where women of color go to. We're not really paying attention to the fact that, yes, men of color are being arrested. Um, at that time, we did they, when that started, they didn't have the phenomena of so many women of color getting arrested that was to follow. And so they saw this also as, oh, we're serving the needs of women of color, many of whom may never call a crisis line, but who will they call the police or somebody will call the police for them. And they're, so we're actually addressing their needs. Now, I also talked to other people within that program that said, Pretty immediately after those types of policies got put into place, you saw the increase of women of color getting arrested. And there was concern. But was there any way in which that turned into kind of this policy reversal or, wait a minute, we actually need to put the brakes on this? No, it didn't happen. It was already a done deal. The train had already left the station. And so it was, you know, you'll see a couple papers on it. You'll see apparently a, a lot of heated conversations that don't show up anywhere except in people's memories and you know I tried to document in hearing about that but that was another way in which um, uh, this kind of concern about racism was used to actually justify the increased involvement of law enforcement and I just have a third story about that which is that Beth Ritchie writes about this in um, a lot in in her books, and she talks about the every woman kind of argument that was made that also led to this kind of promotion of white dominant types of laws saying, well, 
you know, we're not going to look at the disproportionate impact on people of color or women of color because any woman could be a victim of domestic violence. Now, while that's true, that was used because they did not want to promote an idea that communities of color were more violent. And so that led them, certain people, I mean, not everybody, but led certain people to use this kind of every woman argument, thereby uh, is suppressing the kind of um, analysis that would later that Kimberly Crenshaw would, you know, definitely became fam- become famous for in talking about intersectionality. They, Listen, you have not been talking at all about the differential impact on women of color and people of color and immigrant people. And therefore, you have come up with policies and practices and ways of dealing with violence that are ignore us or actually endanger us. So that's my, uh, that is something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of my own questions about how is this that came to be. So uh, really, really happy you brought that up about your mother. I wish, you know, I I wish we could ask her as well. I, I think what I found in coming up with some of those descriptions of what happened was that people who have, some of whom have been responsible for that, did have a little bit of a different understanding of of uh, the impact of what they had done. Yeah, and I and I yeah. wonder because when when I got arrested, so first of all, my mother was like the champion of the primary aggressor law uh, in the state of Nevada. Oh, oh, um, oh, oh my goodness! Uh-huh. And then of course her daughter was arrested for it. <laughs> and and of course she advocated right like Amazing. crazy Amazing. for me um, because the DA was determined to press charges. Blah blah blah. You know, but I, I, mean, I was a kid. I was eighteen, uh, so I, I wasn't having these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I wondered if, if if that shifted anything from her. Mimi, I, I think the other reason why folks, and I do want to get in a toolkit, but you've just like triggered all this other stuff in my head. Um, you know, folks believe that the carceral state, right, is is like the only way. You know, cops and jails are the only way we respond to a situation like domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, is because they have an image in their head of what domestic violence looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm dating mm-hmm. myself here, but you'll remember, I'm sure, there was this movie that came out in the 80s with Farrah Fawcett. Oh, yes. Um, right, called The Burning Bed, right? And it was, I mean, it was, hor- it was horrible. It was horrible. I, I don't know Absolutely. that I should have watched it. <laughs> and it's that I did. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, the, the worst of the worst of the worst. And, uh, you know, she ultimately uh, kills him. But, but... DV or IPV, I guess as we're calling it now, um, and I, I still don't understand why we made that shift. Maybe you can help me understand that uh, in a bit. But um, interpersonal violence looks really different it, depending on the the, the 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 people that are involved. Can you talk about the different ways that interpersonal violence can show up? Yes, I mean that you know that that would be a whole book in and of itself, right? Because it's so many. What I think your point is, it shows up in so many different ways, and we have that kind of diabolical picture that was, you know, that makes the movies. And I can't say that there aren't, you know, when you hear descriptions of certain people and their dynamics, absolutely, uh, they can be yep. very frightening, extremely manipulative. And so that does, for some people, that is their experience of violence. And I don't think that we should erase that in making our argument that it looks many, many different ways. No, let's be right? clear. Women, women die every Absolutely. day. Women die every Absolutely. day. Every day. So, you know, what I think that's really important about those of us that are coming from a transformative justice lens or, you know, whatever words we want to use to describe it is abolition is not about 
denying that violence happens. Abolition is about actually addressing violence in a way that works, that's effective, that has an understanding of the roots of violence and the the multiple roots of violence. So I think that we have situations in which violence is more, you know, what they say, expressive. It can be. Some people are starting to do these kind of categorizations and they make a certain amount of sense. There's kind of everyday acts of violence. There's things that are emotional, not necessarily physical. There are things that do look in some cases, like mutual violence. Um, There are some things that are extremely manipulative. There are some things that are not. There are some things that are predictable. There are some things that are not. There are some things that happen on an everyday basis. There are some things that happen every couple of years. And that if they happen every couple of years, also we understand that sometimes the message is, I could do this to you anytime. So that even if it doesn't happen very often, it may be that the fact that it did happen or that the message was, you better not do anything because I'm going to act like a, a little bit more of a decent person every single day. But you know, I'm capable of doing this. You know, and I've, you know, I've heard that from enough people too. So I think that what it asks us to do is have a much deeper right. understanding of the ways in which people experience violence, the ways in which violence leads to, uh, power and control. And I think this is one of the probably really great things about um, some of the people that we're criticizing now is having a broader view about violence as being a way to control people and not only about how to hurt them, but uh, having the infliction of pain and suffering and other forms could be more around how am I going to keep control over this person as opposed to just this kind of, you know, I just want to inflict damage, although that can happen too. And so I think um, understanding the kind of emotional forms of violence, the financial forms of violence, the ways in which people will use gender, sexuality, immigration status, and all kinds of things to try to control people is an important way that I think all of us should understand the complexities of the ways in which domestic violence, you know, shows up in people's lives and is used in people's lives. You know, I, I didn't really describe particular types of violence, but sort of these this categorization of violence and the way that violence looks in people's lives. I would just say it can be really different. And to make these really narrow kind of social media or movie, you know, kind of these dramatic pictures of what violence looks like, it doesn't mean it, it's wrong and it doesn't describe somebody's experience of violence. But if you're using it to say this is, only what violence looks like, or this is only kind of violence we should care about, or violence looks like this, therefore we need to have police and prisons, then that is a huge problem. And that is done all the time. Right. I mean, I'll just, I'll just take a moment and say like, so my, 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 the first man who caused harm in my life definitely did it mostly through physical interaction. My last human in my life that, that caused harm, he was a narcissist and it was narcissistic abuse. And I got to say that there were, there were times where I wished he would have just hit me, right? Like the, the damage that was done mm-hmm. long-term mm-hmm. in my fight to reclaim even my mental faculties um, absolutely was long and arduous and trying to explain it to people yeah. was really, really hard, right? Um, 
We are talking to uh, Mimi Kim uh, of Creative Interventions. Uh, They've got a new toolkit and workbook out called Creative Interventions, A Practical Guide to Stop Interpersonal Violence. Um, Mimi, you you brought up the term in one of your answers just now, transformative justice. Um, I want to do a little definitions uh, now. and because I, I think they're, you know, it matters, uh, and we throw around these words, and and not everybody, right, is is in the weeds with us. So let's talk about what is transformative justice, what is restorative justice, what are the differences between the two, and where does CI creative intervention sit or not sit in either of those paradigms? Thank you. Um, I would say that you know these are evolving terms, and I just want to say that when we first started CI, and this is a long time ago now, this is 2004, um, transformative justice a term was kind of emerging and was really championed by um, Generation 5, you know, worked very closely with folks from that organization. Um, insight, people tended to say community accountability more than transformative justice. And, you know, we didn't always have long conversations about why or what we even think it meant, but I, I For me, I would say that um, at the time, I really shied away from the word justice. And the word transformative justice and the use of the term justice, I know that was trying to subvert that term. I'm I'm talking a little bit historically in the past because I'll I'll kind of move towards my movement um, in the use of that term um, more recently. Um, that it was so problematic. You know, this word justice, what does justice mean? People are so kind of knee-jerk in terms of thinking justice had to look like punishment, that justice had to look like police and cops, some kind of uh, form of investigation, a trial, and all of these kinds of things when they thought about justice. And that it just seemed, um, and the other thing is it's kind of a, you know, high concept kind of word. And I just said, and I think other people thought this way too, let's talk about something a little bit simpler. That is, we're looking at things that have to do with community, that community um, people and not just individuals are impacted by what we might see as interpersonal forms of violence, like domestic violence. And I say domestic violence much more than intimate partner violence myself, Um, sexual violence, but these are actually forms of violence that take place within a community context. So let's call it community. They're forms of violence that community members often actually uh, promote or um, excuse you know, to this very day. So let's call this community because communities are also accountable for violence. And let's call this community because I do think, and I still believe strongly to this day, that communities are also where you're going to find the solutions to violence, not individuals. Although, you know, we as all as individuals, of course, are responsible for our lives and for changes in our lives and so on and so forth. But, but this is within a community context and that we have to have collective strategies for dealing with violence. Um, and so I think I preferred community accountability, and now I see people kind of switching between the two. But, you know, transformative justice over the years has been become something that I think has really caught, captured the popular imagination. A lot of people use that term. It has meaning. I think we've had a lot of discussions around justice so that, yes, do people still think in terms of punishment, police? Absolutely. 
do more people question what justice means and try to come up with something that's, um, you know, a, a liberatory view of justice? Yes, I think we have just have much broader and wider and deeper conversations about justice. And if people are going to use that term and that has meaning for them, then, uh, you know, I felt like less resistant to that and more to embrace something that was kind of taking off. And, um, and I would say now in terms of defining transformative justice, I think it's, it can be used to think about the, the particular, you know, and you'll see in the toolkit for those people who have looked at it or, or will pick it up, um, the toolkit, you know, how do you actually deal with individual situations of violence? Um, because if we're going to have a politic about doing something different, then we have to actually have a way to carry that out in individual people's lives, right? So I was really interested in that. I was really interested in the pragmatics, and I really love the critique and the politic. But if we can't make it real in people's lives today, then honestly, I'm a little bit, I don't care. If we can't do it, right? Listen, mm-hmm. listen, listen. That's part of the conversation I want to have with you. And 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 I, I'm... I'm going to ask this question. It's not meant to be a gotcha question. I'm really asking it, and you can help me ask it better, right? I'm asking it because I trust you and, um, you know, admire you and 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 use your teachings, right, to Thank inform you. Thank my you. That work. Means, that means a lot to me. Way newer to this to this work um, than you are, and you know, Mimi, I'm I'm, and it's not just me, right? Like there's lots of, in the thick of it, right? With folks that are experiencing really, really horrific things, really, really horrific things right now. And so they'll say to me, all right, like I understand, right? Yeah, sure. Invest in prevention, right? More jobs, da 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 housing, right? Okay, Kat, I hear you. I believe mm-hmm. that. I believe that eventually that's going to make us have uh, a, a healthier society, right? Where l- less and less of this happens. Like they can grasp the concept that mm-hmm. the way that we do society, right? Literally is what is creating, um, you know, hurt people and it's hurt people mm-hmm. that hurt people mm-hmm. not to be cliche. And th- and then they'll look at me and they'll say, but what yes. do we do right now? Yes. Right now with, 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 with folks. And, I sometimes am honestly at, not sometimes, I am a lot of times, Mimi Kim, at a loss. Uh, and I feel like the stuff that comes out of my mouth is, I can't use the word on the radio. But um, so sometimes I just say, you know, we're still in the process of figuring that out. <laughs> you know, I wish we had Terha Ak and CRC, right? They could respond to every single one of these things because that's a form of community accountability. But we don't. We just don't. What what I, I can't imagine you don't get that question. It was that a was that the right way to ask it right way was that was that an okay way to ask that question and and be what what do you say to people like me right that that need to talk about to people about right this second? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you know, I just said what I said, and I, I could just hear in your voice the resonance of the the, the urgency to do something yeah. now. I mean, I think that's where. You know, and Kat, you do so much work. I don't think I have any anything, you know, more than than the uh, the absolute like treasure trove of work you've been working on in the past and right now. So I'm really happy to be engaged in this question with you, and that that I think that urgency is something that I was concerned with 
when I started Creative Interventions back in 20, 2004 that I'm still very concerned about at this very moment now in 2022, that people are, like you said, people are experiencing violence right now as we are talking. So how do we have, and that's, that was my interest in, in our interest, you know, as a collective, uh, as as part of creative interventions, we had a bigger group working on that that toolkit in, in our pilot project, is that we were really, we basically went to call. People would call us and we didn't care who called us and we didn't care what they called about. We were going to try to address their situation and support them. How was it? Um, you know, we didn't actually write the toolkit until like towards the end of what we were doing because we didn't have a toolkit when we started. All we had was the notion that we had to do something different, that we had to actually address real forms of violence were happening every day in all of our communities, that we knew that people were trying to do things and didn't want us to say, call this shelter, call this crisis line, call 911. They did not want to call them or if they or, or they had before and they did not like what they heard. And so they wanted something else. And we didn't have like cool kids. We didn't have a lot of things at that time. We just, we had some politic around what we wanted to do that was different. We heard there were things like restorative justice, but there weren't a lot of examples at that time that were available publicly. Um, we, we, we also had stories from our own people of, hey, we didn't have the cops back. You know, cops never would have come. So we did X, Y, and Z. We did, um, you know, people talking about young people that got together to confront uh, somebody who was beating on their friend and just did something. And we were really curious about collecting those stories of, well, what did you do? How did that work? Did the person who was actually being harmed like what you did? Did it actually stop anything? How was it successful? How wasn't it? So we had that storytelling and organizing project going on, stop, which we still have, and we're actually going to, try to kick that into gear again. But we also then were just trying things on our own and trying to make sense of it and saying, we know this is collective. We know we don't want to reproduce some kind of like service model. Um, we know that we want to have something and we want to create knowledge, forms of knowledge that are then available for people to use on their own, no matter who they are. This was not made for, um, service providers or anti-violence people. Um, although, you know, if you want to use it, go for it. This was really the approach that we tried to create and wrote into something that probably most people aren't going to pick up. It's really a big book, you know, um, and it's also on PDF online for free. So you don't have to buy a book, but um, we wanted something that people could just pick up and say, listen, something's going on right now in my house with my sister, with my friend, with myself, and I need some help. And it really is part of the reason it's so long is because you just don't know what the situation is. You don't know where you're entering. You don't know if it's going to be a friend, a family member that's kind of looking at it saying, oh, I need to help. What am I going to do? Or if it's the person being harmed saying, listen, I, I, I don't want to use the, the things that are out there. But I, I need to make more sense of this. This is real confusing. I'm in trouble. Who can I go to for help? So there's things around like, who's a good person to go to? Who do you know? Who might, you know, maybe they're not the perfect person. And then how can you actually uh, 
you know, have them look at this toolkit or listen to it or hear about it or learn a little bit more so they'll be a better ally and friend to you than they might be on their own. Not because they, they're terrible people or they're stupid or what, but because we don't have this kind of knowledge around. And so it's really made with this idea that can be picked up by anyone, anytime, for any situation. And there's something in there. Is it going to solve every problem you have? But probably not. Is it going to give you a starting place and ideas about who you can get to collectively support you? And it doesn't have to be a crisis line. And maybe it's not going to be a service provider because they don't they think you should call the cops. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or they think you just just should go to them and they don't they don't trust that you can go to other people that, you know. And right. so I, I think these are sadly still things that are a little bit rare in the approach that most service provider types will use. I mean, they're certainly hearing about this more. And I think some of them are trying to to do things in a different way. But um you know, the, in terms of urgency, practicality, absolutely, Kat, this, that's what we all had in mind. That's what the toolkit, and then the workbook is just a shorter form with more around the tools to use because mm-hmm. some people just can't look at something that's so big and pick it up. I just know it. You know, there's people that want to use this that won't pick up anything that's written. So the, the um, workbook is also in a Google Doc form. So if you want to just take it, change it around, use your own words, put your own people's names in there. Um, it's, it, you know, it's, it's like a template. Go ahead and change it, adapt it, use it however you want that works for you. And, um, and that's why we want to have another kind of even more pragmatic and a more small, you know, a smaller and easier to use type of set of tools for people to pick up and use. But I think that that question is just, we have to have that front and center cat and the, absolutely. I think we do too, because otherwise I think we're losing people. We're losing the masses. And if, if we, if we're just talking to each, I mean, I'd talk to you all day right on. Um, but, but I, you know, what is that, that communications exercise really like, Develop your messaging for Aunt jo- or Uncle Joe, um, yeah, or right. Aunt Mary, right? Like, and, right, and that right. that has stayed with me as as an organizer as well, right? Organizing one hundred and one, you got to meet the people where they're at. Not this, necessarily this is organizing one hundred and one. Yeah, and my first thing might not be the toolkit. I, that's why I was like, I don't care if you use the word transformative. Just don't use it if it's going to turn people off. Mm-hmm. You know, because that in and of itself can sound like, wow, elitist. You know, it doesn't have to, but it can. And if you know who you're talking to and that's not the right words to use, what else are you going to use? That's why, like, I like the stories, too, because the stories are, you know, it's just in human terms. It doesn't use any jargon. Yeah. It's just, you know, stories of people's lives. Yeah, and and I mean, I will. I've got I've got the toolkit sitting right here. It is it is a big book, and I just kudos <laughs> to y'all because it's it's the way that it's laid out. I mean, even the size. Listen, as I'm getting older and I no longer have 2020 vision, I just want to say, write the font. I can read it. Um, and, and there are stories like it's broken down like in a way that's that's really. Um, absorbable did i just make up a word i might have uh digestible i think that's the word i was looking for yeah. um 
This is Long Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, for a conversation with Mimi Kim of Creative Interventions. They've got a new toolkit and workbook out, Creative Interventions, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence. Um, Mimi, I want to talk, you mentioned stories, and and I agree. I think stories are some of the best ways to, to illustrate, you know, the work as it's working. And so I wonder if you could tell us two stories, uh, one about successful response, community response to DV or IPV, um, and two successful community response to sexual assault. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, um, I'm just going to use this, this example that because it's, it's short and easy to tell and it's real. It did, this one did involve sexual violence. It did involve people that worked at a crisis center, but really wanted to use a different response. And so one of the stories that is also in in the book and available on our website is just of a woman who worked at a bar and who went to a party and was, um, uh, there was an attempted rape by her boss and um, she wanted to confront him. She didn't want to call the cops. She didn't really want other support. The support she wanted was I want to go and confront this man about what he did to me. And now in a lot of crisis programs, I think they still would not say, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. How could we support you to do that? Maybe more now than, than um, at least in the past, yeah. but um, yeah, but you know, well, we live anyway. We do, we do live in the Bay. So yeah, right. <laughs> right. Have a different conversation here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mean, just that some of the things that we have around this is, you know, who, who do you have, who's in your family, who, who can support you, you know, who's in your pod as, you know, B-A-T-J-C and Mia Mingus really popularized this idea of pod. And, um, you know, it's one of the questions that people have is like, hey, people don't have anybody. Some people don't have anybody, so how could they use this? Well, that's exactly what she said. She said, I don't have anybody. Um, And just by asking that question, she actually kind of started thinking about people. and what she decided that she really wanted to do was to go confront him. And all we did was to support her um, to think about safety. Like, do you really want to just walk into a bar mm-hmm. and confront him at the bar where he probably has a gun? And, you know, what are some, and just to think through, and, you know, that's another section of the toolkit is how to think about safety. Not like, when you think about safety, usually in this kind of social service area, it's like take your money, your passport, your, you know, your ID, some, your keys and all this, like how to run away. Not that that's a bad thing, you know, some of you need to know that. But this was more like how to think safety because you are going to actually get in the face of this person. That's what you want to do. That's what you decide you want to do. And um, she ended up doing that and with support and the kinds of questions that I think are in, in the toolkit and in the workbook thought through how to do that as safely as she could think of. And nothing was going to be hundred percent safe, but she still wanted to do it. Ended up uh, inviting him, calling him, getting him to actually meet with her at a public place at a restaurant. Ended up 
asking the person at the restaurant who was the wait person to look at the table and make sure nothing was going down. So got people to help and support around safety. Did find a friend who was on the other end of a cell phone to kind of be hanging around to make sure nothing went down and did what she wanted to do, which was tell him exactly what he did, you know, practice for it, practice for him to say, no, I didn't Uh, practice for him to deny it, to lash out at her, do all kinds of things. She was kind of ready. And he admitted it. Um, You know, it's a short story. It's a small story, but she walked away from that feeling very uh, much less victimized than she had before feeling like she had a lot more power than she had before. She did what she wanted to do. She did it with support. She did it with, um, you know, thinking through safety and thinking through also not only safety around, you know, what if he comes after me with a gun, but safety around how am I going to feel okay emotionally if this doesn't go the way I'd like it to go? Because that's part of safety too. You know what I mean? It's around um, feeling like you have integrity, that you're not insane, that you had some strategies that you thought things through in a logical way, even if that person's going to go against all logic, which is, you know, very common. So in this case, I probably, the preparation work probably, you know, I don't, I don't know this, this man. So I don't know what he was thinking or what he's thinking now, but it was, again, it's a short story, but it shows how some of those kind of that framework and some of those tools were used to address a situation pretty immediately after it happened and in a way that she felt really good about and hopefully maybe got him to think twice, take accountability, at least in in the immediate. Did he become a better person? We don't know. You know what I mean? We just don't know. Did, did he do something that made her feel like she got some amount of accountability under her terms? Yes. And you actually brought up two things that that um, I, I wanted to talk about, and 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 that is about safety and accountability, right? So we get it a lot at MH first. Um, well, how do you keep your responders safe? You know, if they're going into these situations, and mm-hmm. uh, valid mm-hmm. question, and and it's important to us. We want we want both the people we are being of service to to be safe, right? And we want our folks to be safe. Um, so I'm I'm really glad you talked about that, and 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 you go deeper in it in the in the book. Um, the other thing is, right, is that you hear people when they talk about um, abolitionists, and, and I think the right has really sort of successfully weaponized uh, this to to beat back defund, I think, in out of sheer mortification that the word abolish made it into so many mainstream media pundits' mouths. Um, uh, and, and this idea of accountability, right? And pushing this idea that, oh, abolition means people just get to run around, do whatever they want, and everybody goes, oh, you know, it's okay. Um, we're just going to look the other way and, and, and pat them on their head. And that's so not true. Mm-hmm. Can you talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, accountability and amends uh, a, a, as it plays out in, in creative interventions? Absolutely. I think accountability is just one of the key points. And, and it's also one of the key challenges, just, just to be honest around this work of transformative justice, we are not looking towards dismantling without building. You know, we're looking at building, um, yeah, I know some people don't like to say alternative structures, but I'll just gonna use that term right now. We're building, and then structures that some of us have had in place in our communities before they've been destroyed. 
you know, ways in which we take care of each other, ways in which we talk to each other and confront each other. So how do we how do we recall, remember, honor, build upon some of the beautiful things that we've had that have worked? And how do we also deal with things in 2022? So I think um, around safety, uh, safety and accountability, those are really, really key and critical to those of us who are really doing the work of transforming justice. And absolutely, that includes you, Kat, you know, really looking to you for so many, uh, so much wisdom and lessons on, on that issue that I just think in terms of what um, kind of policies or whatever protocols, whatever, you know, when you're building something that's kind of a program, if you want to call it that, yeah. you know, you do want to think through what do, what kind of safety things do we need to look out for? What, how are we going to actually have some safety protocols in, in place? Because we, you can never eliminate danger. Uh, we're not talking about absolute safety. And part of the myth of the whole criminal justice system is we can have some kind of absolute safety by locking everybody up and <laughs> just like remove each other from each other so that you'll never together again. And in fact, if you try, you're breaking your own, you know, um, your own restraining order, you know, all the kinds of yep. things that we have to falsely imagine that we're going to have some kind of safety. Um but there are ways in which I think that we can practice around safety, that we could think about how to have multiple people in place in different places to think about safety, how you're going to uh, ask yourself certain safety questions before you enter a situation around, you know, how many people are there? What, what do we know about the safety concerns? Um, you know, do we have to bring in other people with certain kind of expertise or have them on on call to have extra support, you know, on uh, these types of questions, I think we have some frameworks for asking some of the questions in the toolkit. And then for people who are going to be doing this on the regular, I think, and not just for, you know, the couple people that you know, or the people in your family, but really kind of going across different folks that you may not know so well, it is important to think some of these things through. Does that mean it's uh, easy? No. Does it mean it's impossible? Absolutely not. I think there has to be some thought put into it and that um, and then people who are actually volunteering or getting paid to enter into situations need to have some honest assessment about what they're willing to risk in what kinds of cases and have that be a, you know, a conversation that can be held in, in a collective group. Um, something that I might feel like comfortable about certain situations and not in others, you might feel uncomfortable in the situations I'm comfortable in but not in others, you know, there's, this is around organizing, right. And making sure people fit the role that is needed. And sometimes that's having different people be on a team. So um, there's not one easy answer to the question around safety, except to say that it's important. And it's something that um, I think some of us have done a lot of thinking around and, um, and some people who are used to being in more highly dangerous situations may know more about how to keep safe in creative ways that other people might not know about. So I think safety can be also a very a creative kind of um, and flexible uh, approach to the ways in which you enter situations, not like willy nilly and anything goes, we're going to wing it every single time, but that certain times, you know, you do have to have some kind of bottom lines, but some flexibility around those bottom lines. Um, so, and around accountability, absolutely. This is, we're talking about transforming justice and community accountability 
in ways. Sometimes, honestly, that is like a rapid response. Just get somebody, you know, we, we need some immediate safety. We don't have, this is not the time to be talking about long-term change for something, somebody who caused harm. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there that sometimes those are the situations we're dealing with. But how are we doing that in such a way that we're setting up for the possibility of long-term change, that we have structures there for long-term change where we uh, have some understanding about accountability that looks at accountability as steps and a, not an absolute, something as a process that needs support, um, something that takes time, something that people can mess up at first doesn't mean that they don't ever want to take accountability because we have so few good examples of what accountability can look like. And I, I just think some, with some of these stories, as we build them up over time, we'll have more examples of people who took accountability in ways that might be like, oh, I, okay, I see what that means. Because when people just hear the word accountability without some context or stories, you know, again, you tend to think of these absolutes or you think of punishment or that means that, you know, there has to be these very kind of rigid ideas. You know, we have to get away from that. Mimi Kim, one of the things that um, caught my eye sort of in the beginning of the book, right, we're just talking about creative interventions and how you all came about. And you talked about the gathering with critical resistance um, was that you, 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 you thought about this as a project and you say that, the, that with the release of this, with the exception of monitoring the website, uh, and I imagine monitoring emails, you know, that they, for help where you can redirect, you know, folks to to orgs on the ground doing the work, that the project is 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 done. Can you talk about why you all went into that thinking like that, and, and what does yeah. that actually mean? Yeah, yeah, we went we went into that with a very strong critique, and this is not just you know kind of in our minds or cool theory stuff, but a real critique of, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And that if we're really looking at a kind of model that's going to be taken up by the person down the street, your, your uncle, your niece, your nibblings, your, you know, the coffee shop owner, the whatever, the gas station attendant, you know, that's what we're talking about. Like, everyday people being able to pick up something like this or learn about it in a different way that's not a book and be able to use this with the people they care about. And if we do that as an expectation that it's always going to come from a phone line or somebody you're going to call that's an office or kind of this professionalized model, I'm not opposed to that happening in these kinds of formations, but I also felt at the time and um, you know others that worked with us felt at the time agreed that we needed to really not think we're always going to be there to prop up something. What we're there to do is to experiment with something, to come up with our, our best lessons learned from that experience, and to pass it on to whoever wants to pick it up, to make it as free as possible. And again, you can get it for absolutely for free on the website. The AK Press, you know, agreed to that. So that was one of our terms for sure and um, be able to use that. I just thought that with coming up with an organization that we thought was going to be long-term, that we were going to be subject to mission creep, you know, whatever they call like, oh, we're doing this now, but we're going to change it because we need the money. And also that I knew there was some hunger for this and there was probably some quick money, but I don't know if that was going to last. 
yeah. So, you know, that and it just really, really had kind of a narrow purpose in, in mind. It's like, try this, try it as soon as possible. Don't have a lot of things in your way in terms of how you're going to do this. We don't have intake forms, anything, you know, ensure yourself enough. So <laughs> you don't get taken down by the dumb stuff, you know, and then do a lot of documenting so that this can be available, not as like, oh, remember that org long time ago? You know, <laughs> you know, and nobody ever knows about you again, but but you know, that actually have this stuff live. And I think I got a nonprofit version of our the servers so that, you know, just could be free forever, you know, except for I think paying for a creative hyphen org uh, interventions.org um, every couple of years. So that's exactly what we did. Um, that was the thinking. It's still pretty rare to think that way. And I don't want to say that to imply that other orgs need to all be temporary because I think um, there are uh, there are projects or organizing projects that, that need to, to be there, to be live. You know, the work that you're doing at Mandala First, that is, that's no small thing. That's a big thing. And um, I think that we figure that Whatever we lessons we were able to give and in creative interventions could be picked up organizationally, but could be picked up just by whatever formation of people were like, man, we have a situation right now. What are we going to do? And and it has been used that way. I'm just very pleased when I have people run into people who are like, oh, my God, I used that with my family and it really helped. Or, you know, we're using this in the community right now. And it's just great to hear that because that's exactly what we wanted. Yeah, just just a couple more questions, Mimi, and I promise to let you go. Uh, you you did bring up resources, though, and 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 I want to talk a little bit about that because, um, I mean, that was a, a big piece of the defund conversation, right? Is that that we do need resources, um, yes. to do this work? So, a, a two part question here. The the first one is, and right when you're we're talking defund, we're talking about like in every single municipality across this country. If you're looking for money to do something, the cops have it, right? That's everything from That's fixing potholes to cleaning your parks and certainly into uh, investing in alternative responses to community crisis. That also means engaging the state in a particular kind of way. And we also know that the state loves to co-op successful movement work, um, water it down, you know, cover it with a bunch of red tape. Um, can you talk about that balancing act a little bit? Wow, that is... That's the, the the question of the you know of the moment for sure, <laughs> right? And I did see this, and Kat knows this. You, you know, you know this from our conversations about what you're doing with mental health first. Clearly, if you're going to have something like at that level, you are at least having some kind of conversation with the state. And I, I think that um, I think this is really important in this moment of where we are in terms of abolition is how do we do that in such a way that we're not duped? That, um, right, and, you know, duping can happen so many different ways, that we keep our eyes on the prize, if we want, maybe that's the wrong language, but we un totally understand that what we're looking at as an end goal is to have autonomous community control over these kinds of, um, strategies that we're coming up with. And sometimes we have this kind of relationship with the state in order to gain enough resources, but they have to be done in a way that is going to, as much as possible, reduce the role of the state, reduce the 
sustaining reliance on the state. And I think that, um, you know, what that actually looks like in terms of a local uh, strategy may be very different. I, you know, some of the things that I've been involved with, um, and, you know, we've invited you to a bunch of these with um, interrupting criminalization has been then looking across these, all these jurisdictions, seeing what do we have in common? What have you learned in your particular jurisdiction that might be useful for somebody else? What are some of the kind of tricks that we're seeing law enforcement continue to use in order to say, oh yeah, we are going to do a, such a thing. And then they, they turn it around. You know, I think some of the people in Denver were talking about how that worked, how it was, things were promised and looked really, you know, stellar, this kind of, um, you know, the police, chief of police saying, oh yeah, we absolutely need community response, but then did it in such a way to make sure that the police kept getting funded at, at or at greater levels than they had been before and making sure there was this co-response um, uh, still held intact while this community response was uh, was being um, um, organized, that there still was this co-response that's policed together with um, often uh, kind of social services or um, psychiatrists and so on that was kept intact while doing this other thing. So it was a little bit of a distraction that, I mean, the kinds of strategizing this requires and the energy and the, the upkeep, you know, I, I'm sure, Kat, that you're so... <laughs> painfully aware of. Yeah. In, I mean, you know, Oakland work, with Oakland. macro, right. And, and somebody right. had to hold that while trying to implement MH first. And it, it really has been yes. uh, rough <laughs> in terms of capacity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really rough on capacity. And, and so I think that, you know, this is our biggest challenge, but I think that it is the challenge that we just have to take on right now. This is the work we, we cannot give up. That doesn't mean that we don't, you know, make some changes or moves or, or pick up the ball somewhere else. But we cannot give up because I, we, we cannot keep the systems that we have right now. We cannot have this. We can't say, oh, there's nothing we can do. Carceral system is going to win. They're going to try to win every single time, of course. But the only way in which we're going to keep... Uh, you know, chipping away or taking down a system that really doesn't make sense right now and um, is just to keep doing what we're doing. And that's in terms of, um, I think, you know, always keeping our politics alive and, and talking about that in a way that reaches the, you know, everyday people and it doesn't get so abstract and so purist that it doesn't, you know, we, I think that we, we always have that work to do. And, you know, I think that the, the work that you do is always so important in that, but we have to also keep up these strategies. And, and I do believe in, well, somebody said it's not scaling up, it's scaling out or something like that. I was like, okay, I, I can, you know, scaling up kind of gives us like idea that we're forming franchises and you know, we always <laughs> have to, whatever. And, you know, but that we do need to expand our work. We really need our work to be happening in, you know, across cities, across counties, and in all those little pockets of our, in our, in our communities of color. We, we need to do this. Um, we can have certain things that maybe is a bunch of different people picking up something like creative interventions toolkit and that, you know, all the different ways in which people have been um, 
riffing off of this and creating their own things, um, you know, kind of this decentered small level. Like, I, I think that what we ha- we're trying to figure out right now is how much we support the kind of mutual aid model, mm-hmm. keep that going, keep that going on a large scale, and that a lot of people have access to that and are supported to, to keep that going. And when is it that we actually have to have a strategy that's, kind of, you know, like you all, you know, where you need fans, where you need 24-7 coverage, where we, you need something that's, that's, that's more robust. Um, how are we going to do that? How do we play this, you know, st- strategic game with with the state, and you know, and with social services that kind of represent the state, um, and with foundations? Like I say all the time, right? Like, what are we going to do when dead black bodies stop trending? Right? Because there was a time where no one had any interest in funding APTP. Let me be real clear about that, and that day is coming again. So uh-huh. these are things we got to be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. And then, right. And I think the other part is this resource strategy, like you're talking about, how do we keep this big money flowing, knowing that sometimes it's just, you know, you you just got to grab what you can during a moment that you have the flavor of the month. And, you know, that's what I think with creative interventions, again, going back to that story was understanding that we were going to be flavor of the month. We were going to have maybe two, three, maybe five years where we had some interest and some money and we had to do something within the bounds of what we could raise right then and then we had to create something that had longevity that would feed the movement and autonomous communities you know for as long as we could so we had those things in mind is like taking advantage of a moment but also keeping something that was going to have some kind of lasting impact um how do you do that when you have you know, very, you know, things that need a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of vehicles and, and so on, you know, I totally want to engage in that ongoing conversation with you and do what we can strategically to, to make that happen because that's not a small scale venture. That's, that's, that's big. And, you know, really appreciate the message that you keep putting out there, Kat, in terms of, um, you know, funders, really, really having, having absolutely to move towards big money and multi-year grants, which they don't like to do, but there's a little movement on that. There is some movement. There is. Is, there it, is, some is, movement. It, is it enough? No. So, so what else can be done? You know, I've been having that conversation um, as this, you know, big money from the cops. Is it coming our way? Uh, that's not working out all that well. They're like oh, grabbing a bat. <laughs> okay. What, what little we were able to wrench out of their hot little hands is definitely flowing back and back quickly. Mimi Kim, I've got to, I've got to cut us off. Uh, I could talk to you forever. I do, do hope you will come back. Uh, Absolutely. Yay. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have been talking to Dr. Mimi Kim. Uh, Dr. Kim is a longtime anti-domestic violence advocate in Asian immigrant and refugee communities, very active in the promotion of community organizing, community accountability, and transformative justice approaches to violence intervention. Also co-founder of Creative Interventions, a national resource center to create and promote community-based interventions to interpersonal violence. They have released a toolkit and a workbook. They go together, uh, grab them both, called Creative Interventions, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Kat. Absolutely.
You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>